CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my usual co-host, Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. And it is uh, Devin Levi night. He is making his debut for the Buffalo Sabres, uh, going up against the New York Rangers. So an original six opponent on a Friday night, Patrick Kane coming back to Buffalo, uh, quite a bit of fanfare. Um, I don't know. Would we expect a full arena for something like this? Uh, kind of last minute, uh, probably the ability to get tickets on the secondary market. Uh, we didn't really know about Devin Levi making his debut until a couple of days ago. What's your prediction, Jonah? Full, full house or no? My prediction, I think, is going to be close to a sellout, but maybe not quite, but I think it absolutely could be a sellout. I don't know. There's been some other games. I didn't go to the morning skate this morning. So there's some other games where you can kind of get that either from the Sabres or kind of hear how strong the walk-up ticket sales have been this week. Or, or and it also could look on the secondary market and maybe kind of figure that out, and I haven't done that yet. But It's an original six opponent. Patrick um, Kane, it's a Friday night. Um, I, I do think it, it has a very good chance of – probably be in a sellout tonight yes absolutely i, I went think, to the I also game. think if not a sellout there's going to be more fans in the building tonight to watch devin levi play than there would have been if a different goaltender uh was starting the game there's going to be a lot of rangers fans too actually i definitely think it's going to be a sellout because the last home game against the rangers i believe was a sellout with a full building of a lot of fans of the new york rangers I went to the game last Friday and it might as well have been a Tuesday. It was against the New Jersey Devils, so a really good opponent. Uh, Jack Hughes, Lindy Ruff coming back, and it just was just like any other night. Um, I was surprised at the number of Devils fans. I mean, the Devils just never really had a contingent, but when the Devils would score a goal, uh, there were a lot of people wearing Devils gear. I know that they're a young and exciting team, but I don't know that they get many fans in – Newark, uh, let alone what I saw in downtown Buffalo last week. But anyways, Rangers, totally different monster. Uh, fans from that era, you know, probably even from Southern Ontario coming across the border uh, because it is uh, a blue blood franchise. And again, the Devin Levi aspect of it's got uh, the Sabres fans a little geared up. Uh, so uh, don't want to talk too much about that because that game takes place uh, four hours from now. So by the time... Uh, you're listening to this podcast uh, previewing Devin Levi uh, probably is uh, old news. Uh, but uh, some stuff going on this week. I was out at the NFL owners meetings in Phoenix. Uh, learned a little bit out there. It was not um, it was not particularly fertile uh, in terms of information. Um I would say, as I was talking to my colleagues out there uh, who cover other teams in the NFL, when we would meet in the lobby or at the 
at the bar or in the in the media center. Hey, uh, what are you learning? Uh, has it been a good week for you? And I kept saying there were a lot of things that you could tweet uh, if you were covering the Bills. Not a lot to really sink your teeth into. Uh, of course, last year's owners' meetings uh, was all about uh, the stadium agreement and uh, the state and the county and the Bills all reaching uh, some sort of uh, accord uh, and moving forward. And here we are a year later, and they're still finalizing the paperwork before they can put a shovel in the ground. But that's going to happen fairly soon. When I say fairly soon, uh, perhaps by the end of April, uh, there's a ceremonial groundbreaking out there uh, across uh, Abbott Road from Highmark Stadium. Uh, and uh, the negotiations are all done. Uh, the state has done its bit. Uh, the county is, uh, I believe, awaiting uh, just paperwork to review. Uh, no more negotiations at all. It is just uh, making sure that there are no typos or things within the, the final document that need to be addressed or corrected. Um, so they're in that phase of uh uh, of hammering at, well, I don't even say hammering out because the negotiation's done, but anyways, uh, there's still some finality that needs to take place in terms of everything becoming official and certified and stamped and filed with this department and that department. Uh, and the bills are not able to begin construction until that is all done. And perhaps within, uh, the next, uh, two, four or five weeks, uh, of course, you know, I say that now, I can't recall the number of times things have just been a couple of weeks away or on the verge of happening. So I guess keep that in mind. That's the latest update uh, regarding the stadium. New renderings came out earlier this week. Um, you know, renderings are renderings. Everything looks shiny and splashy and fancy and the latest technology and and what? Fake. It looks like AI generated in that like real life. Oh, for sure. Yeah. When you see people in renderings, uh, they always, you know, they, they're not to scale. They're maybe facing the wrong direction. Like um, the giant buffaloes or even just some of the decor. It just kind of looks like a video game. Not like what it's really going to look like. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, there are. There are nuances. There are things that are going to change between the renderings and the final product, because once the actual construction starts to happen, uh, whatever materials are used or they may run into an issue or an overrun or whatever. So things may look a little different, but I think that's the gist of it. Um, the Tottenham uh, Hotspur Stadium uh, feel to it uh, with the the roof over the uh, the upper decks. And I think it looks pretty cool. I mean, it's a new stadium. There are very few stadiums that open up and you're like, oh, God, that's ugly. Uh, MetLife Stadium is one, but that's because they had to build it with such neutrality because two teams are housed within MetLife Stadium and they need to be able to flip it from a jet stadium to a giant stadium, not only with the field logos and colors, but everything within the stadium. So it's just this big gray hulk of a building. Uh, and then they throw on some green lights or some blue lights, depending on uh, who's playing or who the, who the home team is that day. Do you know Jonah in the press box at MetLife Stadium? Uh, as they do in all press boxes, you have photos, you know, the historical photos. Um, in Well, I guess they don't have it much 
at Highmark Stadium. There's not a ton of Bills stuff hanging up in the press box, but in many press boxes, you see they do at uh, KeyBank Center. A photo of Lindy Ruff in a fight, uh, Michael Pekka in the uh, Eastern Conference trophy, uh, you know, Larry Playfair, uh, Gilbert Perot, Dominic Hasek making a great save, uh, Derek Plant's uh, goal. You know, there's all these different moments in history. Uh, at MetLife Stadium, they have to change out the photos within the press box for every game. There is somebody that has to go and take down the Jets photos after a Jets game and put up the Giants photos for a Giants game. Uh, I just, it's amazing the lengths that they go to to make sure that it is a, the Giants building that night or the Jets building that night. Um, anyways, that's my, my little bit of trivia about uh, the neutrality of, of MetLife Stadium. Anyways, stadiums are stadiums. Renderings all look fancy and great. The new stadiums are going to be fancy and look great. Um, what else? Anything stand out to you, Jonah? I was actually at the owners meetings and not a ton standing out. You know, the new rules changes. One of the, the more entertaining things about the rules is that zero can be worn when, when the idea of somebody being able to wear zero is one of the highlights coming out of the owners meetings. Uh, that just goes to show that it wasn't particularly, uh, captivating. Yeah, no, I don't find that interesting. I find it slightly interesting that James Cook changed his number to number four today in honor of WIBB News 4 Buffalo. But I'm just biased against that number, so I found that interesting. Understood. I mean, I, I don't – myself, I was – I didn't feel like it was a huge revelation from Sean McDermott admitting that he's probably going to call the defensive plays. Oh, yeah. But I did see that get picked up as a bigger story and even from a little bit on the AP wire and a national perspective. And then thinking about it, I thought it was a little bit interesting that McDermott – admitted to that or, or you know acknowledged that so early in the offseason I thought there was something that the Bills might play closer to the best and maybe even internally spend a longer time figuring out the plan and McDermott did seem to acknowledge that maybe that will change as the season progresses yeah it, it was uh, with the caveat of for now this is what we're going to do and I think he's going to get a feel for it in practices I suppose probably not really uh decide until he gets into preseason games and the different game to game situations that may come up uh, as to when he needs to be channeled with what the offense is doing in terms of game time decisions uh, or game management decisions, I should say, um, when to call a timeout, are we going to punt or go for it right here? Do we want to challenge? Because if he's the defensive coordinator in spirit and calling the plays, when there's a changeover from defense to offense, Sean McDermott's back is going to be to the field because he's going to be talking to his coaches. He's going to be talking to his players who are there on the bench, debriefing them on either what just happened or how we're going to make a change, all that type of stuff. And if the bills face a quick three and out situation and he's still talking to his defensive players, uh, there's, there could be some overlap where he, might feel uncomfortable and and perhaps he doesn't get to that circumstance or, or uh, uh, get into those situations in uh, real time uh, scenarios like he does into the, into the preseason and maybe he gets there and says, all right, Al Holcomb, we want you to do it. Or um, Bobby Babich or whomever else. Well, that's um, why I find it interesting is that I, I think, from his track record, even the few times that, that he took over the pay calling of Buffalo, 
that Sean McDermott is an excellent defensive play caller and probably will do a very good job running the defense and calling the plays. It's always been a defense in his vision and his mold, but this was already a good defense. And, and if the defense, if, if there's any drip, drop in the offense or fall off in the game management and overall just head coach responsibility that's not related to running the defense, you know, what will be the net gain and the net loss of this reshuffle in the coaching staff? And currently, even with Leslie Frazier stepping away, it seems like with Al Holcomb coming in that they have more experience on defense than with the offensive coaching. And is Ken Dorsey ready to run the offense without the same level of input from Sean McDermott? But other people might wonder if, you know, depending on your theories on offensive football and philosophies, if that could benefit the offense to, to maybe empower the offense coordinator to call the plays his own way a little bit more. It's all just kind of speculation, but I think it's going to be interesting how it plays out a lot more than what the plan is now here in March and April. Right. And uh, there are uh, other minds uh, who could uh, factor into this. Uh, Eric Washington, uh, the senior defensive assistant uh, and the defensive line coach, uh, John Butler, who was the, um, uh, the passing game coordinator uh, for the defensive side, uh, in addition to Al Holcomb, who his addition really gave the Bills an extra body uh, on their coaching staff that allowed them to proceed without Leslie Frazier, without having to make a hire. They had a guy already on staff, an extra guy who was going to be there uh, um, to be some sort of advisor or uh, just a top aide. Uh, to uh, Leslie Frazier before he decided to step away and uh, uh, and to Sean McDermott. So uh, the Bills did not need to go through any kind of hiring phase to even find somebody to handle a position group. If Bobby Babich uh, leaves the linebackers group to become the defensive coordinator, then Al Holcomb can take over the linebackers uh, or the defensive line if Eric Washington goes up or whatever they decide to do. So they have some flexibility there, and uh, but I agree. I, I was a little surprised that uh, Sean McDermott uh, made that announcement uh, the way he did because there's really there was really no need to. Um, and again, I, I guess it's it's just uh, pleasantly surprising too uh, because we're so used to in the media uh, being um, uh, given the the Heisman stiff arm when it comes to asking questions about how things are going to go or what your plan is or behind the scenes strategy, or, or, you know, we're generally given the, Hey, we'll wait and see, uh, Hey, you'll be the first to know, you know, all those bullshit uh, responses that you get. Uh, we'll see when, uh, you know, we'll find out eventually it's, uh, uh, the season's still months away. We don't need to worry about that right now. So it was refreshing, uh, for Sean McDermott to come out and say it, uh, take a look, uh, if you get a chance, at Bill Belichick's news conference from that very same morning, uh, they they uh, they put on uh, coaches breakfasts at this NFL owners meeting. It's an annual thing. Uh, AFC coaches were Monday morning. NFC coaches were Tuesday morning. So they bring all the AFC coaches in one room. And so while Sean McDermott is talking, Bill Belichick is uh, at a table talking to his media and whoever else wants to listen in national media. You can ask questions. I could have gone over there and interviewed uh, or talked to uh, Bill Belichick if I wanted to. And it was banging head against a wall uh, for those poor reporters asking the questions. Um, 
he would not commit to what color shirt he was wearing at that moment. Uh, four word answers pretty much to everything. Um, so again, refreshing uh, that Sean McDermott, who I think over time has gotten more mm, sullen's not the word I want to use. Uh, short, I mean, or less, less than when he first, all right, let me put it this way. When he first came in, he was gracious and pretty transparent and said, you know, answered every question with the, at least the spirit of providing information based on whatever question was asked. As time has gone on, Sean McDermott has withdrawn uh, in a, from a personality standpoint to, from the media, I think, uh, to more of a belief that sharing information does him no good. Uh, so it is nice to see in this offseason, um, especially after the campaign that they had in 2022. And uh, I'm sure they're still feeling a bit numb after how everything went uh, from DeMar Hamlin to the weather to the, fi the, the finale against the Bengals to, you know, all of it. Hell, even the Matt Ariza stuff, Tim Pagula, uh, you know, there that was just a whirlwind of a season uh, to see. Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean, you know, still being regular guys uh, to a certain degree. I thought Sean McDermott opened up and gave us a little bit more of an authentic look into his personality a bit more this year, but mostly related to things like DeMar Hamlin and, you know, maybe even Matt Ariza. He was pretty emotional in that press conference earlier in the season and, and did not talk about Kim Pagula very much during the season, but later on when, when that finally came out, he had a bit more to say about it. So I, and in the postseason, I think he was more willing to talk about some of the reasons why the Bills didn't reach expectations this year a lot more than he was willing to disclose, you know, anything about the 13 seconds. So I don't, maybe it's just topical and different days of the week and different feelings, but it did seem like a little bit less reserved, but if you're asking him football strategy questions in the middle of the week, he, he's not giving you very much. I was, uh, I raised an eyebrow when he commented on the addition of the new running back, Damian Harris, and the combination of size and speed, which maybe it's, uh, there's an inference there, um, or maybe I deduced it, which is different than an, he infers, I, I deduce, um, but I think I deduced from what he said about Damian Harris as Devin Singletary wasn't big enough. You know, we, we need more of an ability to get yards after contact or be able to bang off of somebody. Um, size and speed, the combination. It, it, to me, I don't think he was insulting Devin Singletary about that, but it was, I think, a rare uh, look into Sean McDermott's mind uh, because – he gets asked about the running game probably more than anything else um, on the list of things that Sean McDermott gets asked about on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis. Where is the running game or questions about uh, the evolution of the running game? Uh, and I think tangentially, you can include Josh Allen running less into that equation, uh, but he gets asked all the time about what are you going to do with this running game or what? And, and he gives answers. He obviously wants the running game to get better, but wouldn't really ever commit to where or how, uh, or to what, you know, degree do we want to run versus pass? He was pretty close to the vest. He would just say, 
generic things like, yes, we need to get better there. Uh, yes, I want to be uh, more consistent there. Um, but when asked about Damian Harris uh, at this coach's breakfast, he made mention of size and speed and the ability to do more things. Um, and again, that was another, I think, bit of transparency that was that was nice to see from Sean McDermott. It's probably because Damian Harrison, Damian Harris has had success running against Sean McDermott's defense. I think he knows the threats that he provides. I do think not that this is a shot at any of the running backs from last year, but I think if we're perceiving it that way, it's probably a little bit of an analysis of uh, Zach Moss and what he wasn't able to bring to the offense that they seem to want him to be the big back short yardage guy. And it didn't work out well. And maybe that they didn't have that all in one player that they could either put a big right. back out there or they could put a fast back out there. And now there's the possibility to put somebody out there that accomplishes both. And I think an overall speed, for the offense and the running backs with Cook and Naheem Hines, they're going to be a faster group of ball carriers. Let me just read that quote. I happen to have it here in front of me from Sean McDermott regarding Damian Harris. I think the biggest thing is the speed element. We felt like we needed a slightly bigger back, but not a 250-pound cloud of dust type guy. So to find a player with some size, with some power, but also the speed elements that go along with it, I think that's hard to defend because not only can you run up inside, but you can get to the edge from time to time and an eight yard run can go for 18 or 80. So I think that the element is dangerous and puts a little bit of fear into some defensive coordinators. And, and that's I think the slowest of three running backs. Right. And that's where I deduce that he's saying we didn't have that before, which is true. And we, we know that, but to hear him say it, I thought was, was interesting. Um, can we extrapolate that the Bills are happy with their running backs and probably not using a high draft pick on another running back? Oh, I think that that's that's certain. Um, not only that, but I, you know, that. So there are the things that are said uh, at the NFL owners meetings uh, on the record, and then there are things that are learned at the NFL owners meetings. Uh, I do think that uh, running back is probably not uh, high on the list. Uh, or sh certainly not in the first round. Um, I think that we can see uh, as time evolves regarding, um, you know, uh, Brandon Bean's uh, plan for the running back position, you know, over the years, as you know, as we see more and more that he is just not willing to invest a lot into that position from a financial standpoint or a draft capital standpoint. And, while second round picks are good picks, um, that seems to be about as far as he's willing to go uh, because he could have had other running backs at different times uh, and has chosen not to. Um, there was somewhere else I was going to go with that. Um, running back. Um, I, I guess I should point out, because I did tweet about it, and a lot of people have been asking me uh, regarding DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, you know, one thing I did learn at the NFL owners meetings is that much of the DeAndre Hopkins talk has been social media generated. And what I mean by that is not by what's being reported on social media by anybody from Ian Rappaport and Adam Schefter, uh, Dan Graziano, Jeremy Fowler, Albert Breer, all the different people who cover the NFL in a national sense, down to Tim Graham, the athletic. Uh, nobody has reported that the Bills uh, are in on this. 
uh, it has all been kind of just assumed. Uh, and it's just been, uh, I, I think it's, um, I think we heard some frustration from Brandon Bean when he was asked about DeAndre Hopkins, talking about how 1% of it might be true, meaning, yes, they check on everybody. Uh, if they feel that somebody might be available in a trade, uh, that they will make the phone call. Sometimes it's not Brandon Bean because the way he divides up his staff there are people within the Bills scouting department who are responsible for knowing other teams in the league frontwards and backwards. So whoever the Cardinals guy is on the Bills staff might make the call to somebody on the Cardinals staff and say, hey, uh, are you moving DeAndre Hopkins? Um, and uh, okay, uh, if the answer perhaps is yes, then what are you know what's the starting? you know where are we starting with this discussion? That doesn't mean that Brandon Bean has made a move for DeAndre Hopkins to have the have the Buffalo Bills called about DeAndre Hopkins. I guess technically, yes, uh, but they've called about everybody. Um, so they've technically they probably called on Ezekiel Elliott and they probably called on Austin Eckler and they probably have called on everybody. They called on Christian McCaffrey. Uh, they called on Antonio Brown. I mean, you can go down the list of any name. Probably a lot of guy names that you would have to look them up on pro football reference as to who, who the hell is that guy because he's a reserve offensive lineman that the Bills maybe saw a couple of years ago and, and decided, thought that maybe he's uh, might be a fit. But anyways, um, so I guess you get into the semantics of have the Bills called about DeAndre Hopkins? I think you can guarantee that they have. Uh, you can guarantee that they've called on everybody who might be available. Have the Bills made an offer or any offers being made from any team? And the sense that I get, not just a sense, but being told directly from people who know that the DeAndre Hopkins stuff has been coming from, whether it be his camp, a cryptic tweet, his former teammate, Adam Pacman Jones, who's appearing on the Pat McAfee show, um, certain people who are in the media, but not in the reporting business, uh, who are drumming up or, you know, uh, who, who are sending up smoke regarding DeAndre Hopkins and the bills or DeAndre Hopkins and the Ravens or DeAndre Hopkins and the jets, that it's not coming from the teams that nothing is happening. And when it comes to the bills, I mean, just from a common sense standpoint, um, and also from information that, that Brandon Bean stressed at, uh, down there at the owners' meetings, he spoke on the record about being up against the 2024 cap already. Um, if you're going to take on uh, DeAndre Hopkins, he's going to need to restructure his contract and forfeit a lot of money. Now, this is a guy, by the way, who gave up six games worth of checks last year because of his PED suspension. He's going to be 31. The big contract uh, is probably not coming again uh, for him. Uh, so is he going to sacrifice his current big contract to go chase a Lombardi trophy? I think that's the hope. I think that's that's wishful thinking. But yeah, maybe, maybe he does. But his his numbers for his cap are 30 million, almost 31 million and 26 million over the next two years with base salaries of 19 and a half million and 15 million. Um, and if the bills are up against the cap, 
Uh, and of course, those cap numbers change a, a little bit if there's a trade involved. Um, then DeAndre Hopkins, you're having to talk about spreading out a money over years and De- and uh, Stefan Diggs is about to turn 30. So do you want to have all that money sunk into 30 something receivers for the next four years? Brandon Bean clearly is a guy who it says over and over again, uh, he is interested in building a perennial contender, not the, not the, the team that's going to go for it for one year, like the, like the Rams did and were successful, but you know, what if you don't make it and then you're hitting the reset button? Uh, He doesn't want to have to hit the reset button. So anyways, um, and that's not even getting to the part of what the Cardinals are going to expect in return. Are the, are the Cardinals going to take a fifth-round pick? You know, the Bills need their draft picks. They need their early picks um, because Josh Allen costs a lot of money and Von Miller costs a lot of money and Stephon Diggs costs a lot of money. Um, Deion Dawkins and Tredavious White, they all cost a lot of money. Uh, you need your draft picks to contribute on their rookie deals to make your team work on a year-to-year basis. So anyway. Um, yeah, I never thought th- it made any sense. Even before, you know, you were able to kind of break it down and analyze it and, and do a bit of background reporting on whether, you know, it, it, you know, to figure out how it made could make more sense. Now, can it I, happen? Yes, it can happen. It is possible. I mean, they po- can, but, Jerry Rice can come out of retirement and play for the Bills next year, too. I right, guess the, anything can happen. I think it's, the, to be the honest. The Cardinals could get so desperate that they accept a sixth-round pick, and DeAndre Hopkins wants the Lombardi so bad that he's willing to sacrifice tens and tens of millions of dollars. But I think it makes so little sense from a financial and just the mechanics of the deal and roster building for the Bills and what they need and, and the money they have committed to Stephon Diggs and other big-name players that I think it's laughable how many – People assume that this was an imminent deal and the Bills were the front runners and pushing hard to make this trade under certain circumstances like giving up Ed Oliver and multiple picks on top of that. And I think it hurts the credibility of anybody who tried to report that the Bills were going to trade for DeAndre Hopkins or that a DeAndre Hopkins trade was being negotiated and close to being announced and slightly dings the credibility of even credible media that kind of was on the watch and thought it might be happening. Not that it hurts the credibility, but I'm surprised there wasn't more analysis like you just gave. This doesn't make sense. It's not what the Bills are looking to do right now. Any rumors that you've heard about DeAndre Hopkins are smoke coming from outside of the Bills organization. Right, and from a media standpoint, Joan, I guess I I know I went through like the common sense stuff about it, but from, from, I guess, my advice to people who are listening and the pushback that I got from my tweet where I said that the trade – doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, and some people took that as the bills are out now on, on DeAndre Hopkins. No, they were never in yet. I mean, this is stall. I mean, yeah, they could, ha- I mean, the bills are out. No, it's not like, uh, you, you know, they made an offer and the Cardinals played hardball and the bills are like, fuck you Cardinals. We're not paying that. And I think that's what people take because they, they took the smoke or the, the, the generated shit as fact. But if you go and look at who is reporting or who is saying DeAndre Hopkins to the Bills, nobody ever did. DeAndre Hopkins put something on Instagram with Buffalo Soldier lyrics on it, deleted it. Pac-Man Jones goes on the Pat McAfee show and says uh, Hopkins 
uh, would like to play for the Ravens or, or he predicts that Hopkins is going to land with either the Ravens or the Bills. So people take that as something's close. You have these different accounts that, that these jerk off accounts that try to pretend to be in the know and have these scoops about so-and-so is getting their medicals done right now. Uh, or that, you know, uh, the deal is in place. Uh, the, I mean, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. Um, well, but I also had, I think, legitimate reporters that thought, eh, I might need to clear my schedule Thursday night, or I might need to keep some time open in my sports cast because this could get announced any right. minute now. I think right. there, oh, there people... was buzz. There was buzz, and I think it came, but it came from, from what I've learned on this, it has come there. So if there was any teeth at all to the initial reporting was coming from what I would consider the player side of things, meaning DeAndre Hopkins, DeAndre Hopkins friends, and then it get through like the telephone game of where it's kind of spread among play some players. And again, this is this is my sense of it. I don't know this to be true because I would need to, you know, I would need to talk to an awful lot of people to but it seems as though it then kind of just turned into the truth uh, that people were so excited about it that it got to perhaps even some people within one bill's drive that, hey, uh, I'm hearing that this is close, meaning players, not people who actually know uh, or people with you know who are close to the players. So it, it's funny how this this happens. I think it's it's and we saw it with Odell Beckham Jr. Also, Von Miller saying uh what didn't he say i guarantee he's going to be a buffalo bill at some point or something close to that they're talking about picking out yeah they're picking out lockers Uh, what locker does he want at one bill's drive and people were like von miller would never lie or um brandon bean loves loves von miller so much he's going to listen to von miller uh you know so so i think what we're having here and and we've seen it with other things too that don't impact the bills, but we see players being more and more emboldened on social media um, with or without agents. Some guys famously don't have agents. They're trying to create a self-fulfilling prophecy that let's just put it out there. Let's get people worked up about it. And maybe the bills and maybe in their own uh, naivete, they say, huh, the bills are going to see the fans want this so bad. They're going to have to do it. And I think that's what's been happening with both Odell Beckham Jr. and DeAndre Hopkins, this social media push that the bills are just kind of along for the ride in terms of, you know, what do we even say about this? Um, So, so, and again, you're safe in saying the bills have checked, the bills have, have called about DeAndre Hopkins, which sounds like a pretty juicy nugget, right? you're pretty safe in reporting that whether it's from your anonymous account or whether I want to say it or whomever you're, you're probably right. And then I think then there are some people who are saying, I'm going to chase some clout. I'm going to gamble. I'm going to roll the dice and I'm going to say this is happening and hope it happens. And it goes back to, well, hell Jonah, we were just talking about it last night. Right. Uh, And I know I've said this before on this podcast, but I had a boxing promoter one time, tell me, uh, this is back in the late nineties. Uh, he, he said to me, I I was on the phone with him and, uh, he, he was pointing out an inaccuracy about some boxer or he was being promoted as being bigger than he was, or he had some bullshit minor league belt and he really didn't. 
uh, because they were using it for advertising purposes. And he said, Tim, sometimes people just want to be lied to. And I thought it was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard somebody say. Uh, what do you mean? Why people want to be lied to? And I remember we had like a joking like argument about it. I'm like, ah, that's bullshit. And then the older I've gotten, the more I've just encountered situations where people are offended to hear the truth. Uh, they want to be lied to. We see it in everyday life, but even go back 15 years when hockey buzz became a thing, fake hockey rumors became an actual business. It actually hired hockey writers away from newspapers to do, to write for these websites where they analyze figments of somebody's imagination. You know, there, this is an E4, uh, this is an E2 alert. You know, this trade is, it, it was all bullshit. It was all invented because people want to be lied to. And I remember having conversations with people at the time, like, why do you follow this website? Why are you even talking about it? Because it, it's fun. Anyways. No, I think that's an excellent point. And I, I think an extension of that or kind of a, a similarity to that is you see this a lot with people that believe in conspiracy theories. And I think it's going to happen in sports just as easily as outside of sports. It's less serious in sports. But people are attracted to what's entertaining and interesting and exciting, even if it's not something that they want to happen, or even if it's a negative story or a negative rumor or something that you hope is not true, but your brain reacts to the more interesting or exciting or just, you know, attractive storyline. And then you start putting the scenario together and wanting to believe that's true because the truth is boring and not as interesting. And right. It's a little bit of like the trade deadline to do something Darcy or do something Kevin Adams. At this point, some NFL and Bills fans that aren't that interested in the other sports and the other storylines just want something to happen with the Bills. As much as they might want DeAndre Hopkins to be the something sexy. Yeah, something sexy and something interesting and something rumored to be that's being talked about by national reporters. And then you start believing rumors and speculation or putting, you know, the uh the tea leaves together when you don't really have the actual credible reports and, and real quick on, on sort of like the journalism side of this thing, I think it can tie into some of the reaction and the reporting around the UB basketball coaching search. Uh, you know, anybody can hear a rumor and you can hear it from somebody who really you think should know the truth, a former player, a former coach, a Bills employee, a Sabres employee plugged into the situation. But as a reporter, you got to trust that you're not just hearing a rumor spread that that person is giving you information that they know to be true. And they understand that if you report that and it's not true, that that's going to damage the reporter's credibility and splash back on it. And you and I, and, and a lot of reporters have good sources who understand that dynamic that won't tell you bad information or will tell you what they know to be true and don't know to be true. And we also have softer sources that give us rumors and speculation. And some of that's good and innuendo and Hey, I wonder about this. And that puts you on, it can raise your antenna and be looking into things, but you can't trust those sources the same as other sources when you're actually coming to, to report in the facts. And, and, you know, some of these people aren't reporters, but I think when you're going out there and tweeting things, rumors, I think you should hold yourself to that same standard. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but some of the anonymous rumor accounts, I don't know, maybe it's a different game, maybe just putting out the rumors. It is a different game, but I but get a sense that, that it's not that they're that. they're invented. 
Well, that's why I guess that's the point I'm making. Sometimes it is, but I'm hoping I'm giving all of these people the benefit of the doubt that they're not just making up rumors. And may, and you're right. Sometimes they. Well, are. but why would? Or, so what, again, you got to think about motivations. If you have legitimate information and legitimate sources, why would you do it anonymously? You want credit for it. If you help make money off right, of it, yeah. find a way to get, you know, get paid for your information. But why do it anonymously? Make a, name, make a name for yourself. Like you're making a name for your, uh, yeah. I guess there's a branding element. Some of these accounts have, you know, it's a podcast or it's a blog. But yeah, I mean, I don't know though. Because then with like basketball coaching, there's these coaching rumors account and there's there's different offshoots of that. And there does seem to be, a element of being anonymous allows you to throw more at the wall and not have to answer for the things that are wrong. And, you know, maybe if you're a, a real person with a real name, throwing a bunch of rumors out there that can splash back on you in a way that just coaching rumors.com doesn't do the same hoop dirt. I mean, there's nuances to it, but that's why you and I and people with, with real journalism jobs kind of don't traffic in the same rumor mongering and, and speculation, even though maybe right. we like to, it's a little bit fun at the bar. Sometimes we talk about things like that, that we've heard. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you, you need to be a little more discerning, I think, or maybe you don't want to be discerning. Maybe you're one of those people that that promoter was referring to and who, uh, we see more and more, or at least I've, I've noticed and I'm willing to acknowledge more and more over the last 20 years, since he had that conversation with me, uh, that you want to be lied to that it's fun. Uh, let me live a fantasy. Let me live in this. Uh, it's just more exciting to talk about the Andre Hopkins as a fit to the bills. Uh, and he's on his way than it is to try to figure out, uh, if Josh Allen has enough with, uh, with Shakir and, um, and, uh, shoot, uh, Hardy, Deontay Hardy, um, and whatever else. And Gabe Davis, hopefully he learns to catch the ball on a more regular basis. And that's I mean, what you Gabe, need. Gabe Davis is what he, he, that was his third year. He's going in his fourth year. And at the end of his second year, he set an NFL record for touchdowns in a playoff game. It came in last year and had a great start. Then he got hurt. I'm not saying that there are maybe some concerns about Gabe Davis's development and maybe he's not everything bills and bills fans wanted him to be in the number two receiver. But I think that he did enough that you absolutely um, should give him another opportunity to maybe, you know, show that he is that player and can develop into something better and more consistent than he was in the second half of the season after he had faced some injuries. Uh, another, uh, I guess, storyline that came out of uh, the owners' meetings is not new, especially if you follow the Bills on a regular basis. Maybe it was more of a national story just because people don't follow the bills as closely as, as we do here. And I'm assuming those of you who are listening here on Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK, but the whole notion that Josh Allen has to run less. Um, I mean, we hear this every year, I mean, why is this is no revelation that the bills want Josh Allen to run less? No shit. They always say that. And then he has more yards than he did the year before. Uh, and that hasn't been a steady climb, but generally over the course of his career, he keeps running more. Uh, he had, I think, one fewer yard last year than he did in 2021, but he also played one fewer game. Uh, he scores a lot of rushing touchdowns still. I get it. They still do want him to think more about it, but does, that doesn't mean that there's some new plan in place. 
um, necessarily. I mean, they're maybe they overhaul their offense and how they do it, and they they stop calling uh, as many uh, RPOs uh, as uh, they used to. Uh, maybe there's a concerted effort. But the Bills have talked about Josh Allen running less every year since he entered the league, uh, and he still continues to run like a bat out of hell. Yeah, well, in some ways, to me, sitting here at the end of March going into April, it's a big so what. Like, it's a week-to-week league in that way with game planning and kind of how things are going and how Josh Allen's feeling. He could have zero carries week one and 10 rushes week two, and it could depend on the opponent and the game flow. And a lot of times I think Josh Allen runs on called pass plays when it wasn't really designed for him to run. Um, They've had a lot of design runs for Josh Allen at various points. I think it happens when they're in – games that they feel like they either need to win or they need to establish certain things on offense and they lean on that a little more. And then in other weeks, they try to protect them more and don't call as many runs. I think it's obvious that you don't want to expose your starting quarterback to as many hits and the older Josh Allen gets and the more money they have invested into his contract, you try to protect them from that more and more. But if it's, you know, fourth and two and the game's on the line in a playoff game, you're not going to tell them not to run. So you let Josh Allen be the player he is, and in some ways Josh Allen will be the player he is, even if the Bills and the coaches, you know, he's this golden retriever quarterback. I mean, tell your golden retriever not to run around in the backyard and see if it listens to you. Right. I mean, it's just the way he plays the game. But the and I know I've said it before to get a chuckle out of you, and occasionally your golden retriever is going to go roll around in his own shit. Well, or or eat yeah. or eat rabbit turds or whatever. He's going to do something stupid. But look, look. So my parents had a golden retriever recently. Uh, died but that i'm not uh, why is that funny no i'm just it's not funny but i I feel like this is going in a weird direction i'm not implying anything (laughs) about similar to josh allen but in a way in a football career the older the dog got the less it ran around the slower it ran around the less it wanted to run around and josh allen as he ages as a player and maybe deals with some injury or maybe takes a hit where he's like oh i don't want to take another one of those he will decide to run less he might learn the value. And I think he's learned it a little bit already of sliding and stepping out of bounds and not taking as many risks, but he's also still in a bit of the younger phase of his career where that's a big part of his game. It gives him an advantage and you're still going to see. It's also the league is trending toward more mobile quarterbacks and design runs for the quarterback. So the bills would be going against really what's working for a lot of teams in the league by restricting Josh Allen to the pocket too much more. And Oh, by the way, Pretty much all of Josh Allen's injuries that he's faced in his career so far have come on hits in the pocket. So just saying Josh Allen's not going to run as much actually might not lead to less injuries for Josh Allen. There's a little bit of a counterintuitive element there. And Josh Allen could run for 1,000 yards and in Week 17 take a hit and get injured and miss the playoffs or something like that. I mean, you just don't know what's going to happen and how you can prevent these injuries or not. You kind of just have to go out there week to week, have a game plan and play football and hope for the best. Speaking of hoping for the best university at Buffalo has hired a new hoops coach. Um, George Halkovich. I want to look at the, uh, the way to pronunciate it. I had to look down at my pronunciation guide because that uh, can go a few different ways. George Halkovich the associate head coach to Jay Wright uh, at Villanova. He was with that program for 15 years, two national championships, four final fours. Uh, your thoughts on Hal Kovic? Right off the top, what you mentioned, 
You know, he's been part of a very successful, if not the most successful program in college basketball over the last 15 years. Um, he's almost a Villanova lifer from his family and, and being from that area and people that even though he played at Division Three Babson College, but he started his coaching career as a graduate assistant at Villanova and moved his way up the various roles to now being the associate head coach at Villanova. And on paper, you can look at it in a way that, hey, this is Jay Wright's right-hand man, right-hand man with a W, and that he has been a part of all the success that Villanova has had, and at the very least has been a witness to all of the success that Villanova has had and knows what a championship program looks like and how it's run and can bring that structure and knowledge and culture into Buffalo. And I think that there's reason for hope in that sense that if he just implements the Jay Wright blueprint and what he's learned and what he's been around, that that should lead to a winning culture and winning basketball. But it's not that simple, and it doesn't always work that way when you hire the top assistant from a Power Five to become the head coach in a mid-major, especially when there hasn't been a head coach before. And sometimes those coaches don't do so well in their first job, and maybe they get a second opportunity and they do better. Sometimes those coaches hit it out of the park, and sometimes they weren't good head coaching material from the start. You really can't just look at Jay Wright's record and Villanova's record and extrapolate that to uh, – George Halkovich's record and how that's going to play out for UB. And there's some reasons to be a little bit, not concerned, but wonder if this is a home run hire in a way that it might look like on just those bullet points and the quotes in the press release. Let's talk about that, Jonah, because I think a newsworthy part of this process, uh, and you were all over it, uh, you were tweeting about uh, people who were visiting, uh, people who were either pulling out of consideration, you know, what, uh, what can you say about this process and how it reflects on UB? I don't know how it reflects on UB because I do think. And can you give a rundown of the other candidates too, for those who maybe didn't follow it so closely? Yes, I can. What I'm going to say here is that um, I'm going to tell you, some coaches that I know were in the mix and were finalists and maybe got offered jobs or were candidates and turned it down. And then there's some belief that there were maybe a few more that I don't necessarily know about all the names. So I'm going to name some names. And then there's a perception and a belief that maybe there were more names, but Adam Cohen being the main one off the top, Xavier associate head coach previously at Stanford, a Williamsville North graduate and had started his coaching career as a student manager at UB before he went on and moved on to be a student manager at Arizona and has been a bit of a rising star in the coaching profession. And from what I was told from sources and understanding of the situation was the top pick for the job, at least when they got to the point of bringing uh, you know candidates to campus and offering it out, was offered the job and turned it down for a family decision type reason. And, and maybe if his family dynamics were different, he would be the head coach of Buffalo. I think it's a job that in some ways, in the basketball ways, he wanted uh, in his hometown. There was a uh, another coach, Ben McCollum, who's the coach at Northwest Missouri State, who's won four national championships, and he's considered a, uh, we talked about him on the podcast last week, a very, he's, he has a reputation mm-hmm. as an excellent coach, and the kind of guy, when his name was floated as being a candidate at Buffalo, a lot of 
people locally and nationally and in the coaching business said, wow, that's going to be a knockout hire. Um, did not take the job. Uh, I was told for more lifestyle, location reasons, wanting to stay in the Midwest and maybe even early on in the process knew that this wasn't a move he was going to make, but listened to Buffalo's pitch and Buffalo's offer and considered it in some ways enough to come to campus and interview there. And then the third, I was told that it was down to the final three. And the third of those three was Jared Calhoun, who's a coach at, who's the head coach at Youngstown State, which won the Horizon League regular season title and hosted an NIT game for the first time in its history. And he's done well there. And, uh, you know, I think Buffalo is a step up league wise, but I think the decision there was probably about, because he ends up send, uh, signing a contract extension at Youngstown State very shortly after it was reported out there and believed to be known that he turned down Buffalo in some fashion. Um, that you think he, he used UB for leverage just well, to get a better I, I think in, in all of these situations, coaches do that. I don't know if it was as cut and dry as he only, only used UB for leverage, but I think that uh, UB being in the mix gave him some leverage. But from what I understand, uh, maybe his decision had more to do with the the structure of NIL and the resources in the program and maybe not being able to replicate the success he's had at Youngstown state immediately at Buffalo and a comfort level of what he can do at Youngstown state. And he's probably in a position where he will keep winning there and eventually move on to a power five job. He's a former Bob Huggins assistant at West Virginia and that making that not a lateral move, but a somewhat, what do you want to call it? 15 degree angle, move you know what I mean like a semi-lateral move to Buffalo wouldn't have put him in a better position and there might be other reasons I don't know all of the reasons the coaches don't tell me all of the reasons and they don't necessarily tell UB all of the reasons you know they either say they pull their name out of consideration or they turn down the offer and UB moves on to the next coach and it did I think look disturbing to a lot of UB fans that there was this kind of uh, rapid fire uh, and there's other names out there. I'm not going to say any more names because a few of them, I, I think this might be true, but I didn't get the same solid type sourcing that I have on those three names. Um, but that anywhere from three to five different coaches might have rebuffed UB's offers before they turned around to a second round of identifying candidates and having three more coaches interviewed this week. And I, that might be part of the process. You know, I've never been in in a coaching search. I know that at smaller levels, this can happen a lot when the pay is low and it can be hard to find a coach willing to take the job. I, at the higher levels, you know, if a blue blood program opens, it's not hard to find somebody to take the job. The hard part is picking the right person. I think a job like Buffalo's in between, and it might be a normal occurrence for a Mac school to have to go a bit down their list. I think a better, a more experienced search firm, well, the search firm's experience, but a more experienced AD and a more experienced search group might identify the candidates that are going to say yes a little bit quicker and not put yourself in the position of having to go further down the list. But maybe this is just part of how the sausage is made. And if you get the right coach and a good coach in the end, it doesn't really matter who said no and who doesn't want to coach. What I don't know, and I don't even know if this is the case, but when you look at, you know, there was a number of coaches that either turned down the job or passed on being offered the job last time, four years ago. And when you add that up, you start to wonder, you know, what's the common thread? What is it about this Buffalo job that 
not so many coaches wanted it after the success that, or not to say that, what is it about this Buffalo job that some coaches didn't want when they could get it when Bobby Hurley had so much success and moved on to Arizona State and Nate Oates had even more success and moved on to Alabama. And I know coaches, successful coaches, assistant coaches, but that want this job, that would have said yes. So it's not a toxic job that no coach wanted, but what was the common theme as to why so many different coaches seemed to find a personal reason why they didn't want this job both four years ago and this time. And there might not be that common thread, but maybe there is. I'm still trying to figure that part of it out. What is your sense, or maybe you, maybe your opinion has changed in what you've learned over the last week or two uh, during this search What's your sense on UB's NIL situation? And when you talk about that being an attractive uh, facet of any attractive or unappealing facet of any coaching job in today's landscape, um, what, how would you describe UB's NIL based on well, what you've heard? Anybody's NIL situation can be rather fluid because the way the rules are set up in the landscape of college basketball right now, um, you know, UB and the SUNY system can't just line item budget money for NIL. That has to come from outside businesses. And in theory, it's supposed to be about the athletes and their own markability and not really connected to recruiting and bringing in transfers and retaining your own players and getting your players paid and, and recruiting really. But that's not how it's, practice all the time it it does seem like the better programs the programs that recruit better have nil collectives behind them we're working adjacent to them and it from what i learned through this you know reporting on this coaching search that that's something that coaches are looking at when they look at new jobs and new environments is what is the nil climate and what are the what is the nil potential around that program and in that market and from what i understand there isn't much of that right now here with Buffalo, at least with the basketball program. Um, I know Jim Weitzel had a bit of a collective working for him through his brothers in the, you know, the Hollywood success, which you reported on that, you know, very detailed in the athletic and that there was some money available through that. And obviously that's not going to be there anymore with Jim Weitzel not being the coach. That doesn't mean that a businessman or a donor or somebody could step up and all of a sudden begin to fund or business itself could begin to fund some of this NIL uh, collective stuff, but I don't really think that's in place now. Now, maybe George Helkovich has some ties to Philadelphia businessmen that he can bring into the mix, or maybe he just knows how the game is played and um, can make that work. Um, You know, a little bit on the speculative, but, uh, you know, this is something I heard from a pretty good source is that there is some belief that, you know, Villanova had some resources in the past that they don't have anymore, and that could be some of the reasons why things are changing on the Villanova coaching staff and one of the reasons why George Helkovich was trying to get a head coaching job that maybe, you know, that situation's changing. So the idea of maybe bringing NLI support from Philadelphia and Villanova, I don't really think that's going to happen. Um, but you know, anything can change. And just as much as you're recruiting players, maybe you now need to recruit boosters and donors and local businesses to 
step up in that regard. But I think it's a it's a symptom of a larger issue of where UB Athletics fits in the local pecking order and the corporate sponsorship dollars and even just kind of the the fan support and the small bits of fundraising. You know, we, we give a lot of money to certain causes that might be tangentially related to the bills or something like that, but or strongly related to the bills and bills players. And that people that live around Buffalo, there aren't as many people wanting sports fans wanting to give money either directly to UB athletics or now to the players through an NIL collective. So we'll see how that plays out. I don't know if UB is in a worse position in that way than the rest of the Mac, but it doesn't seem like that NIL structure is in place for them to really compete at, you know, getting the recruits to get this program back to that top 25 number six seed in the NCAA tournament standard, which, a lot of fans want to see again, and you have to wonder if UB thinks that's the expectation because they just fired Jim Weitzel after one losing season, and the implication is that if you're not winning the way Nate Oates won, we're going to go find another coach to do that. Yeah, the pedigree is there for George Halkovich, um, at least in terms of his resume, uh, but uh, the the main question I have uh, is how much recruiting has this guy done? And where does he, uh, where where does his experience lie? I know he he got into the business uh, as a graduate assistant at Villanova, uh, was their video coordinator. When you take a look at his background and his path, granted, he knows how to build a program, or at least he he knows how Jay Wright built uh, one of the most successful programs over the last you know, a couple of decades at Villanova, frontwards and backwards, probably because he was in at the ground floor and you know, doing all the different things. Um, but when you take a look at the jobs that he has done at Villanova, what stands out? What stands out is that it doesn't really stand out. Now, he's been an assistant coach since 2006, which means he has recruited. All assistant coaches are on the road recruiting. There's actually a story I read in The Athletic that kind of profiled him and Kyle Neptune together at the Peach Jam a few years back and what they're looking for in recruits. He's been on the road and he's recruited, and I'm sure he was involved in recruiting um, some of the Villanova players that are there now or were there in recent seasons. From what I've heard from other coaches and people around basketball and in the coaching business, he does not have the reputation of a great recruiter like some other coaches do, like Adam Cohen had, like Brian Hodgson would have had, like um, Mike Menega, former UB and Canisius assistant who's now at Oregon and is known as a guy that gets excellent players out of Canada and has brought great players to Oregon who went and were drafted in the NBA. Um, he doesn't have, George Helkovich doesn't have that reputation as a recruiter and has a, doesn't have a long resume of being a guy who is recruiting a lot of the great players that Villanova has had in, in some of those national championship seasons were recruited before uh, George Helkovich was an assistant coach. Also, I believe Kyle Neptune was a, the lead recruiter for that staff for a number of years, which is one of the reasons why Kyle Neptune got the Fordham job a few years back. And another reason why when George Helkovich was the associate head coach, when Jay Wright was ready to retire last year, that Kyle Neptune was brought back in over the top of George Helkovich. And my belief is that, you know, recruiting ability might have been part of that decision. Now, all of that said, 
That doesn't mean that George Helgovich can't be a good recruiter. You know, that's maybe something that he can, that's in his tool set, in his, you know, bag of tricks that he has in, that he can get better at or he can do more of that because when it's his own program. And doesn't it all head, comes down to the Your staff. head coach really needs to be a closer, though, right? Or to doesn't... be the closer, yes. I mean, but. Or can you have a top assistant who's the closer? Yes, you can have a top assistant who's a closer if he's good enough. But it helps. That's why it works so well with um, with UB under Nate Oates because Nate Oates was a great recruiter who had a great recruiter and Brian Hodgson below him and also had other coaches doing recruiting. Jamie Corals, who stayed on at UB and, and was a, a good recruiter. Um, when, but when you have the excellent recruiter that can identify talent and get in early on players, that's something that's important at this level. And then you have a good recruiter and a good closer in your head coach. That's when you really end up bringing in excellent players, but things are so different are getting to be so different now because there's recruiting, but there's also recruiting in the transfer portal. There's retaining your own players. There's identifying player. It used to be if a mid-major can identify a guy who maybe should be a division one player or a power five player, but the power five schools were slow to identify that. And you luck out and you get CJ Massenburg for all four years. Nowadays, you get a player like that and he goes into the portal in a year or two. Um, unless you have a, a head coach who has that ability and dynamic personality to retain the players and re-recruit the players. And the NIL is a huge factor in that now. There's players who maybe would want to stay at Canisius, Niagara, Buffalo, but wouldn't it be foolish of them not to go in the transfer portal and make twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars next year if it's possible, or at least go in the portal and see what you're worth. And it it's hard for, I think, schools that don't have that money behind them or don't have the NIL resources to compete with that. So recruiting has become a whole different thing, but you still need to be able to identify talent and bring players in. It'll be very interesting what happens with the current UB players who are in the transfer portal, how many of them come back and and what type of transfers or, or whether it'll be four-year high school players, younger players that they recruit to replace them. I think it's going to be a lot like what happened with the women's program last year where they lost most all of the roster, they had to re-recruit pretty much all of the spots, brought in a lot of transfers and even players from the Division II level who were in their fifth year and had some success on the floor, but now they're gone and they're being replaced by a lot of recruits from the high school level. Um, so it's going to be a very fluid situation. I think you're going to see one recruiting strategy right now and then maybe a different recruiting strategy for recruiting in the future. And a lot is going to come down to who George Halkovich hires as his assistants and how good they are at recruiting and then how it plays out from there. But I think that's probably the biggest concern is that they didn't hire someone like Brian Hodgson or Adam Cohen or Mike Menega from a reputation standpoint. At least. Do you think uh, uh, George Halkovich uh, arriving as UB's new coach creates a series with Villanova, which would be kind of cool? I'd say probably not, but maybe. I think that Villanova plays here if Villanova wants to play here for Villanova's own purposes. Now, it certainly could end up being maybe a bye game down at Villanova. Uh, I think that could have happened with Jim Weitzel or anybody else at the coach as well. But, yeah, there's probably more likely the opportunity that Buffalo ends up playing a game at Villanova at some point. I don't think you'll see a home-and-home series where Villanova comes here. Gotcha. All right. 
Well, that's a pretty I good think overview. You might, see, uh, you might see Jay Wright coming in as a special guest on courtside seat for a game or two over the years. That might be one of the coolest side perks of this. <laughs> which which doesn't do anything for me, uh, but uh, or probably many, many people. They're going to have to win. Um for uh, George Halkovich to work out, but that's a pretty good overview of the higher end UB's program uh, and, and what they're dealing with. Um, of those, of those three who didn't work out Cohen McCullum and Calhoun. Um, any was any one of a major surprise, obviously Cohen being from yeah. Will North Cohen, that seems to surprise a lot of people. I did hear that the way I heard it was that that would maybe be a hurdle to climb with, um, the potential that he would decide to stay at Xavier for a family reason, but it was maybe more explained to me. Like, I I think people thought Adam Cohen was going to be the next UB coach, but I think I had also heard that that was a possibility that he might turn it down for a family reason. And so, what I don't know is that was that always going to be the case, or was there maybe a way? UB could have pitched the job or offered a salary that, that broke through that hurdle. I don't know. Um, but at the same time, I mean, just to kind of give you a little bit, give the listeners a little bit insight in my reporting, I was very close to tweeting out that Adam Cohen's going to be the next coach. That's the way I heard it, that Adam Cohen was the pick, that it was going to be announced last Saturday, and he was going to be introduced on Monday. I had someone that's over at UB telling me how he was on you know, various campus lists of a campus guest for what would have been this past Monday that he was coming to campus. And then I was checking back with sources of mine that I trust and eventually heard back that, well, here's what's really happening. He got offered the job, he turned it down, they're moving on to the number two, then maybe the number three. But I almost had, I didn't, I wasn't as far along where I had the story written, but I kind of had the tweet written. I was kind of ready to say Adam Cohen is going to be introduced Monday as a new coach at Buffalo. I'm glad I didn't, and I'm glad I, you know, went back on that reporting and got more information about that. Um, but it was, I think that surprised UB, and I think it surprised a number of people because people were anticipating that that was going to be the move. Good stuff, Jonah. Well, uh, we've been at it for a while here. This has been a lengthy uh, Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, especially for just two dudes uh, jawjacking with no guest. I think it's been fun. You know, we started this podcast and it was the middle of winter and now it's baseball season. <laughs> You're right. Uh, all right, Jonah. Uh, enjoy Devin Levi's debut. Uh, maybe I'll see you after that. Um, hopefully he uh, puts on a show one way or the other. Um, well, let's just make it, I guess it's going to be newsworthy no matter what he does. Even if he gets shelled, if he pitches a shutout anywhere sure. in between, it's right. the story I mean, no matter yeah, it's a story no matter what happens. And I also think an extension of that is that I think it's a it's a bit of an event in Saberland and Buffalo sports history, regardless of what happens. You know, if he comes out and wins, and this is I think gonna be a very memorable debut. He's the fourth youngest goaltender the Sabres have ever started and the youngest since Martin Buran played as a eighteen year old in nineteen ninety six. Wearing and, double zero. Okay, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But before so it was win, banned in the NHL. So if the Sabres win and Devin Levi plays well, this is going to be, you know, long remembered as a great debut of a great Sabres player. Even if he does not play well, or let's say he plays well enough, but the Sabres don't win the game, 
I think it's still going to be part of the Devin Levi origin story at some point when he becomes the full-time starter or when he becomes, you know, like Ryan Miller's debut. They lost, what was it, 4-3 in overtime. I think that was a road game, and he was very emotional afterwards. And people remember that as a memorable debut for Ryan Miller and a kind of a I want to say it was a home game because I was waiting him out. He was trying to hide in the dressing room. I thought it was a road game, but I wasn't, you know, covering the team then. You were. But you know what I mean? I think people are going to remember Devin Levi's first start, regardless of how it plays out. And there are certain ways it could play out that it's going to be a very memorable event tonight. And, you know, if he has a type of career where he's, um, you know, getting his number 27, Tredavious White's goalie number raised to the rafters and 20, 25 years from now, the people who were at the game tonight will remember and say, hey, I was at his first game. And I remember that. It was against the Rangers and Patrick Kane and the Sabres were in the playoff race. And, you know, what if what if they win tonight with Devin Levi in the net and they decide to ride the hot hand and he leads them to the playoffs? That seems maybe a little bit unrealistic, but it's not impossible. It could happen. I am looking at Ryan Miller's game logs. It was at New Jersey in overtime. I, I'm trying to wonder what game it was. And then the, his home debut was a win. Maybe he went down and then came back up. I don't, I, it, it, he was called up and I just remember him not having a good game. And I wanted to talk to him afterwards and he was hiding in the, in the locker room after a close. He was, we were out, uh, we were having a standoff. And finally the, uh, Equipment manager Rip Simona came out and tried to run some interference to tell, have him go the other way, and I was able to finally get him to talk to me. You, um, from your from your experience covering that game and, and the Sabers over the years and being around the league and knowing what you know, do you have any surprise or insight into how quickly Devin Levi's gone from joining the team and only practicing twice to starting and, and not getting a game where he's the backup goalie first, or is, is this common with young star rookie goaltenders? Um. No, it's not common, although Chris Baker did talk about it uh, when we had him on uh, when Devin Levi signed with the Sabres and reported straight to Buffalo. This starts his clock. So from a contract standpoint, um, I think the Sabres would love to stash him or put him in the minors or have him even, you know, delay the signing. And there's all kinds of different ways that you used to keep in mind. I covered the Darcy Regeer Sabres. Uh, so he was always trying to manipulate the system to the Sabres' uh, benefit, and yeah, and rightfully so. That That's the job he was supposed to do. But the Sabres needed Devin Levi to be happy, uh, and so him signing the moment Northwestern or Northeastern, excuse me, uh, season is over uh, and starting that clock is in Devin Levi's best interest to get to the next contract uh, and get get his NHL career clock uh, moving. So I think that that was a um, concession that the Sabres were willing to make uh, for Devin Levi's contentment. Uh, and uh, and so if he's here and the Sabres are having issues and they're kind of out of the race and it's like, well, hell, might as well get him a game. Uh, let's give the fans uh, something to to get excited about. So I think it's 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 uh, the Sabres are trying to be practical uh, for their goalie of the future. They know he's going to be their goalie of the future. Uh, he's not coming from Europe where he's stuck in a system like UPL was or whatever. Like he's ready to go. Let's let him, let's let him uh, get a taste. Yeah. Well, 
my initial thought was that it might have made more sense for him to start with a game where he's the backup, he gets the dress and mentally prepared to play, but doesn't ever have to play. Or perhaps there's a situation, and this may be easier to do once they're out of the playoff race, where he's the backup goalie and he ends up only playing the third period or something like that. A lower pressure situation to get him more and more acclimated and spend more time practicing before he actually does start. Yeah, Marty Baran's debut was an emergency situation. The Sabres were so depleted at goaltender throughout their system, they had no choice but to bring him up. I think the fact that he's starting this game at home against a good team while the Sabres still have something to play for is an indication that they're confident in what he might be able to do or they're at least intrigued enough to throw him out there and try to get a win. Um now, I think it helps that they had three days off and they could practice and really get him prepared. Um, there was some thought that his debut might come Saturday night in Philadelphia because there would be less pressure in the road game and second night of the back of the back and things like that. But they're really putting him out there in, a, in an important game and an important night for the fan base. And I think they're hoping that that energy from the fans and the Don Granato talked about this, that the players in front of Devin Levi might play a little better maybe not harder, but a little bit more in a way that protects Devon Levi to maybe make sure he wins his first start or doesn't get hung out to dry in his first start and that actually starting Devon Levi can give the Sabres a bit of a boost. And the Sabres, they got some good goaltending last weekend from Eric Comrie, Eric Comrie, but they haven't gotten great goaltending for most of the season. So I think there's maybe a belief that, hey, if Devin Levi is a – a superstar in the making, maybe he's the guy that makes us better in this final playoff push. Jonah, thanks for this. Um, enjoy the debut coverage. Easy story to write. Whatever he does, that's what you write about. So you don't have to think too much tonight. Uh, and uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsource solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400. 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you.